Amen. So we are continuing our series through the book of John. Today we're going to find ourselves in John chapter 12. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you would. John chapter 12 in just a few minutes will be beginning in verse 1. Uh, last Sunday, I just want to say thanks to Alan for preaching the word last week. Didn't he do a great job in my absence? We we're so thankful. It was a good message on being bold for Jesus Christ and standing for our faith. If you missed that message, you can catch it on our YouTube channel. Uh, I do encourage you to listen to Alan's message from last Sunday. Uh, last Sunday, my family and I drove down to San Diego to visit my mom. She turned 86 in November. And as many of you know, just two months ago, she moved in with my sister who lives down in San Diego. And so uh, we went down to visit my mom and my sister and my two nephews. And so it was a fun trip. It was a quick just one day there and back. But we went down there and my sister and I wanted to do something a little bit different. My mom hasn't spent much time in San Diego. She's now calling that home. And so we thought it'd be fun to take her on the San Diego trolley. And so we made reservations for one of our favorite Mexican restaurants in Old Town, San Diego. And we saw that the trolley went from Santee all the way to Old Town. And we thought, great, we'll just leave an hour ahead of time and uh, make it to Old Town and have a nice meal. Well, we get to the trolley station in Santee and we realize Old Town is the 17th stop on the line. That's a lot of stops between here and where we want to go, but we, eh, maybe we'll make it in time. So after 16 stops, we get to our 17th stop in its old town, and we realize it's a half-mile walk to the restaurant. And my mom's 86 years old. All right, Mom, here we go. I've got to say, I was really impressed. I've never seen an 86-year-old woman walk that fast because we got there late. But you know what? She was moving. She's doing really well, and we just had a great time uh, visiting with my family last week. So... Uh, good to be back with you today. Good to be able to dive into God's Word as uh, God's Word is so good. This message today I hope is a blessing to you. It certainly was a blessing to me as I was preparing for today. Well, here we go. Two weeks ago, we finished John chapter 11, which is really a pivotal chapter in John's gospel. One of Jesus' friends, Lazarus, remember, died, and by the time Jesus rolled into town there in Bethany, just about two miles from Jerusalem, he rolls into town, and Lazarus, he discovers, has been in the tomb already for four days. And so he wasn't just dead. He was yucky, smelly, decomposing dead. He was really dead. But no matter, Jesus calls forth, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And remember what happens. The mummy man <laughs> shuffles out of the tomb, and everyone's jaw drops, and they are in awe that a man who had been dead for four days has just been raised to life. Now, you would think that everyone who witnessed this amazing miracle would put their faith in Jesus, but you probably remember that's not what happened. It's not what happened. Some of the witnesses hoofed it two miles to Jerusalem to tell some of the Pharisees what Jesus had done. The Pharisees hated Jesus. The Pharisees, in turn, told the rest of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, what had happened with Lazarus, what Jesus had done. And the Sanhedrin convenes and decides, we are going to kill Jesus. That's what we're going to do. They decided to kill him, and they were just looking for an opportunity to do it. And so at the end of chapter 11, Jesus knew it wasn't his time to be arrested and crucified. So he slips out of town and goes goes to the town of Ephraim, where we pick up in verse 1 of John chapter 12. So if you're there in your Bibles, please say amen. amen. Here we are, John 12, beginning in verse 1. 
Six days before the Passover, Jesus returned. He arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and, and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Heavenly Father, this is such a vital passage for us to grasp, to understand, and in a large way to emulate. Lord, speak to us today. Change us today through your holy word. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel writers, all record an incident of a woman anointing Jesus with perfume. There's no doubt that Matthew and Mark, well, I shouldn't say no doubt, there's little doubt that Matthew and Mark record the same anointing as John does, the passage we just read. But we're pretty sure that Luke's account is different. If you look at the details in Luke's account of a woman anointing Jesus with perfume, in Luke's account it says that the woman was a sinful woman. That seems to indicate that she was a former prostitute. This woman comes in and she anoints Jesus' feet with the perfume and wipes his feet with her hair. That's similar to this passage we just read. But then the objection is different. After she does that, it says there in Luke that the host of that banquet protested because he said if this was a true rabbi, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. And so the scandal is that a prostitute is being allowed to touch a rabbi's feet. That's the big ordeal in the Luke passage here. And in Matthew and Mark, the objection has to do with the cost of the perfume that's poured out. So I'm pretty sure that Jesus was anointed two different times. The first time was early in his ministry in Galilee, northern Israel. And then he was anointed a second time here six days before he went to the cross here in the town of Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. So there'll be some times during the message today that I'll refer to what Matthew and Mark say about this anointing. If they are the same anointing, it's helpful to know those extra details that Matthew and Mark mention that John doesn't mention. Let's look again at verse 1. John tells us that it was six days before the Passover. Later in verse 12, he tells us on the following day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We know that triumphal entry as Palm Sunday. And so it seems clear it was the day before Palm Sunday, so it was most likely a Saturday when Jesus was anointed there at that banquet. 
Jesus rolls into the town of Bethany with his 12 disciples. It's just been a few weeks since he raised Lazarus from the dead. So there's still quite a buzz around town about about what Jesus had done for Lazarus. According to verse 2, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Matthew and Mark tell us that the dinner was held at the home of a man called Simon the leper. So this man evidently used to have leprosy. Maybe Jesus healed him of that leprosy. We're not told. But there's a really good chance Jesus had touched and healed this man who in turn hosted this banquet. Well, all three siblings that we were introduced to in chapter 11 are at this, this banquet. Remember the siblings there in Bethany. We had Martha, we had Lazarus, and we had Mary. And each of these three siblings is at this banquet, and each of them has a role. Martha is serving. Lazarus is eating. And in verse 3, we see that Mary is at the feet of Jesus, and she is worshiping. Now, let's talk for a moment about the the layout of this banquet. When most people picture, uh, for instance, the Last Supper, that Jesus had with his disciples. Most people, when they think of Jesus at a meal with his disciples, they get this picture, okay? Now, there's no doubt about it. Leonardo da Vinci, who painted this famous scene that's called the Last Supper, there's no doubt da Vinci was a genius with the paintbrush. There's no doubt. He was a genius painter, one of the greatest painters in all of human history. But judging by this painting... He was a pretty lousy historian because there is no way that the Last Supper looked like this. For starters, in Jesus' day in Israel, people would never sit in chairs at tall tables to eat. Notice the word that's used here. Lazarus is reclining at the table. And so the Last Supper didn't look like this. It more likely looked like this next picture. Here's what a scene would typically look like in Jesus' day when men were reclining at the table. They would not be sitting in chairs. They would be sitting on mats and on pillows on the floor. And there would be a very short table in front of them. They would come around it. And what would happen since, just like in our day, most people were right-handed, they would lean on their left arm so their right arm could be free to reach food and feed themselves by hand. And then their feet would be back behind them, resting comfortably. And so their feet would be furthest from the table. This was, is what it meant to recline at the table. So this is likely what it looked like at the Last Supper. And this is likely what it looked like inside this home of Simon. And so Jesus is there with his disciples, with Lazarus, with Simon. And they are there reclining at the table. Now, Martha, it says, was serving. That's interesting. This wasn't her house. It was Simon's house. So maybe she was the go-to caterer there in Bethany. That's pretty impressive. She's serving and evidently prepared the meal there at someone else's house. And so there she is serving. She's doing her part. And then in verse 3, notice what it says. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, Matthew and Mark share a few details that John doesn't mention. First, the perfume was housed in an alabaster box. Some English translations translate it as an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, what on earth is an alabaster jar? Well, 
Alabaster was a very precious stone that was mined in Israel. It was kind of a whitish, opaque color, sometimes a bit translucent, and it was very much like marble. And so imagine this marble flask. And so it was a hard stone. It was a very beautiful stone, so beautiful, in fact, that Solomon used it in the building of that glorious temple in Old Testament times. The temple had some alabaster in it. And and this picture isn't completely accurate with what it would have looked like. Typically, there was a very long, skinny neck of that alabaster jar. And once that neck was broken, there was no turning back. That jar was opened and could not be resealed. And so there's this alabaster jar. And inside this alabaster jar, this bottle that was not cheap, by itself it was a beautiful piece of artwork, just the jar itself. But inside it is this nard perfume, pure, unadulterated nard. Now we know that nard was secured from the nard plant in northern India. So this was imported perfume that probably had to be taken 2,500 miles across the desert to make it to Israel. The Greek word that John uses here for the amount of nard is the Greek word litra. And so in the New International Version that I just read a few minutes ago to you, it says about a pint. But we know this term litra refers to 12 ounces According to Judas Iscariot, it was worth a year's wages. And so you do the math. Back then, a year's wages for a working man. Today, it would be worth somewhere between $30,000 and $40,000. That's an expensive jar of perfume. Now, was Mary loaded? Was she rolling in the dough? Most likely not. Then how on earth could she afford a $30,000 a bottle of perfume. Well, the answer is most likely that she and her family together had worked for years to be able to purchase this precious flask of perfume. It was certainly her most prized possession intended to be given to her future husband as dowry so that he would marry her. It was her ticket to a better life. It was her ticket to a happy marriage. And here in John 12, 3, she gives it all away, not to a prospective husband, but to her Lord. Isn't that beautiful? According to Mark 14, verse 3, Mary broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. That's significant. She breaks the jar and proceeds to pour it on Jesus' head. Imagine the scent that would fill the room if even one ounce of high-quality perfume was poured out in this place. But she doesn't just pour one ounce, does she? Two ounces, three ounces, four ounces. Twelve ounces of perfume pours out all over. Now, Matthew and Mark say it was over Jesus' head. John tells us she took it a step further. I'm not worried about it, bud. That's part of the, part of the ambiance here. <laughs> Thank you, though. Poured it all out on Jesus' head. John says she took it a step further and poured it all over his feet. And so you can imagine that perfume rolled down his head onto his shoulders. 
And then as she went down to his feet to anoint his feet with that same perfume, you can imagine that it poured off his feet and onto the floor and even through the cracks in the floor. So when it says the entire house was filled with that aroma, you better believe the entire house was filled with that aroma. I have here a four-ounce bottle of Ralph Lauren Polo cologne. All right. This is not my normal cologne. I have to keep you ladies guessing. That was bad service. It's a four-ounce bottle of cologne. If I was to break this and accidentally spill it, that would stink up the place, wouldn't it? Imagine three times this amount. Twelve ounces of perfume poured out all over Jesus' head and all over his feet. Well, according to John, the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Chuck Swindoll, I think, does such a marvelous job of piecing together what Matthew, Mark, and John say about this anointing. Swindoll says it this way. He writes, Sometime during the meal, she opened an alabaster jar of expensive perfume and anointed Jesus' head. Then, moved by her enormous gratitude for grace or overtaken by grief for the ordeal he was about to suffer, Mary knelt over his feet, broke the alabaster jar, and emptied the perfume on Jesus' feet in a lavish gesture of worship. She drenched his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. The fragrance of her spontaneous devotion filled the room. I love that last sentence. The fragrance of her spontaneous devotion filled the room. Say that with me. The fragrance of her spontaneous devotion filled the room. The only time that a Jewish woman would ever put that much perfume on a single human body would be if that person was dead. The only time a woman would put that much perfume on a body. We'll revisit that again in verse 7. Well, notice what the reaction of those in the room is. The reaction of the, the crowd in the room wasn't very favorable, was it? Matthew and Mark don't name names. Mark simply says, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? Matthew gets a little more specific. He pins the blame on the 12 disciples. Matthew writes, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. Now look again at verses 4 and 5 here in John 12, because John does name names, doesn't he? He names names. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. It seems clear that Judas Iscariot was the instigator. And so we put the accounts together. What seems to have happened is Judas Iscariot is the first one to protest. What? What are you doing? What a waste. What a waste. And then as the instigator, the other disciples jumped on board and joined in in the criticism and the rebuke of this woman who was worshiping at Jesus' feet. And as the attacks escalate, Jesus gets involved. But don't miss this. In the other accounts... It makes it very clear that the disciples rebuked this woman harshly. They rebuked her harshly. What would that have sounded like? It probably sounded something like this. Mary, what the hell are you doing? You stupid, 
foolish woman. I've seen some dumb things in my lifetime, but this is the dumbest thing that I have ever seen. It says it was a harsh rebuke. That is a harsh rebuke. So Jesus, as it's escalating, he stops them. He shuts them down quickly. And he turns to Judas Iscariot, the instigator, and he says in verses 7 and 8, leave her alone. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you, but you'll not always have me. In Mark 14, verses 6 through 8, Mark gives us a a more detailed account of Jesus' rebuke. In Mark 14, Jesus says this, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Don't forget that word beautiful. She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And then the very next verse, I don't want you to miss this, verse 9 there in Mark chapter 14, she says this, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Isn't that awesome? Here we are 2,000 years later, and Christians are still talking about what Mary did, what Mary of Bethany did there over 2,000 years ago. Not over, but about 2,000 years ago there in the town of Bethany. Across the world, Christians in every culture have remembered Mary of Bethany as a Christian woman who loved Jesus so much that she poured a whole jar of expensive perfume on him and she got down on her hands and knees and wiped his feet with her hair. It's no wonder that many Christian parents over the last 2,000 years have named their baby girls Mary. It's not just because that was the name of Jesus' earthly mother. It was also because of Mary of Bethany. Many have named their daughters Mary and memory of this sweet woman who loved to worship humbly. It's no surprise that most Christian parents have refused to name their sons Judas because Judas has become equivalent with a traitor. Judas is just slightly more popular of a name than Jezebel or Benedict Arnold. Not very popular names. Jesus says, you will be remembered for what you've done. You will be remembered. Well, when you think about it, Judas was a real snake in the grass in this room at this banquet. But he did have a point. He had a point. When you think about it, Judas Iscariot's protest in verse 5 does make sense. He's absolutely right that she could have sold that expensive jar of perfume and helped a whole lot of poor people with it, right? He was right. But John, writing this gospel account more than 50 years later, had the gift of hindsight, and he knew 50 years later what was inside the heart of of Judas Iscariot. And so he fills us in in verse 6. Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas Iscariot really would have made a great politician, right? Let's be honest. He would have been a good politician, man. He, he had it all together on the outside. He had everybody fooled. All 11 other apostles, man, they were convinced he was the real deal. But Jesus knew the truth, didn't he? Judas had everyone fooled except for Jesus. Jesus knew he was a thief. 
Jesus knew he was a snake in the grass. Jesus knew he was full of the devil. But no one else knew. He put on a really good show. Well, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus rebukes Judas Iscariot and the others in the room who were verbally attacking Mary. He shuts down their criticism. Then John the Apostle gives us an FYI in verses 9 through 11. A large crowd of Jews, including Jewish leaders from Jerusalem, traveled to Bethany to see if the rumors were true. Rumor number one, Jesus has returned to Bethany, just two miles from Jerusalem. Rumor number two, Lazarus is still very much alive. And so some of these Jewish leaders came down from Jerusalem to check it out, and they found out that both rumors were, in fact, true. Jesus was there, and Lazarus was very much alive. And so they decided not only to kill Jesus, but they decided to kill Lazarus as well. With Lazarus alive, too many people were believing in Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God, so they wanted to remove the evidence of the amazing eye-popping miracle. And they decide in their treachery, to kill Lazarus as well. Well, that leads us back to verse 3. I want us to focus for a few minutes on this beautiful act of worship that's recorded in that one simple verse. It's actually pretty remarkable. We look at this passage, and even in your Bibles, you probably see a little heading above it about Mary anointing Jesus' feet. That's only recorded in one verse, verse 3. Several verses are dedicated to Judas's objection and Jesus rebuke, rebuking Judas and the disciples. Only one verse is dedicated to Mary doing the anointing, but that overshadows all else, doesn't it? And so I want us to look once again at verse 3 and learn from Mary of Bethany four lessons about true worship. I don't want you to miss these. These really touched my heart this last week. Lesson number one. True worship can't always be scheduled. A true worshiper worships spontaneously just as a loving spouse loves spontaneously. Could you read that with me? True worship can't always be scheduled. A true worshiper worships spontaneously just as a loving spouse loves spontaneously. Uh, Do you think that Mary had planned months ahead of time to anoint Jesus' feet with perfume? You think she planned that well in advance? It's like she had a calendar on her wall and says, okay, six days before Passover, Jesus will probably be in town for a visit, and I'm going to set this flask of perfume aside because six days before Passover, I'm going to anoint his feet with his perfume. And she planned it ahead of time? In all likelihood, no. It was spontaneous. It was a spontaneous act of worship. She loved Jesus. She was so grateful to Jesus for bringing her brother back from the dead. She wanted to worship Jesus. So without much planning, she went to her house, grabbed her most priceless possession, a jar of perfume, and she poured it all over Jesus, his head and his feet. Think about this. Each week we come together on Sundays to worship Jesus Christ together. And that is so important. In fact, it's a command in the New Testament. Do not forsake the meeting together of the saints. God has called us to come together each week for worship. And so we have a scheduled day and time to come together and worship Christ, right? Okay, that's very important. But if your worship is simply contained to an hour or hour and a half block of time on a Sunday morning, then your worship is pretty wimpy. 
God calls us to worship Him and to worship Christ on specific days at specific times as the church comes together. But He also calls us to worship outside of that time frame, doesn't He? Worship, real worship, has to have some spontaneity to it as well. Here's the thing. If we only worship Christ on these scheduled days and times, we're not worshiping as God has called us to worship like Mary. I urge you to worship Christ more spontaneously. When you're driving your car by yourself, why not just break out in singing? Say, well, I have a terrible voice. Jesus doesn't care. He gave you that voice. If you're in your car, just spontaneously, just start singing to him. Maybe you've got Christian radio on. Sing along with the song. Just worship him spontaneously. Sing in the shower. Chances are the rest of those in the house won't care too much. You know, close an extra door or something if you have to. But, you know, spontaneously sing to Jesus. Sometimes just during the day, just spontaneously pray to Jesus. How about this? It's great to have a time and a place to do your daily devotions. I hope that all of you are doing that in the new year. We've been challenging you over the last few weeks. Dedicate the first 40 days of the new year to being in God's Word every day for at least 10 minutes a day. We've encouraged you. We've challenged you to do this. But don't just keep your devotion time to that 10 minutes. Just out of the blue during the day, crack open your Bible. You have a question about God or about something in Scripture, just open the Bible and find the answer. Have some spontaneity to your worship, just like Mary. Sing to Him. Tell Him you love Him in the middle of the night. Read His Word at unplanned times. And worship Him by serving the people that seem to spontaneously come across your path in the course of a day. Someone comes across your path, serve them for the love of God. Spontaneous worship is so important, but that's not the only lesson we can learn from Mary. Look at lesson number two. Please read this with me. True worship is extravagant. A true worshiper never holds a calculator to measure his or her worship. Let me ask you, who was it who calculated the value of Mary's jar of perfume? It was Judas Iscariot, wasn't it? It wasn't Mary. She wasn't there with her calculator trying to figure out how much this thing was worth, right? It was Judas Iscariot. He was the one crunching the numbers. He was the one saying it could have been sold for more, for, for, it could have been sold for a year's wages. Interestingly, if you go over to Mark's account, Mark says that those disciples said it could have been sold for more than a year's income. And so I imagine uh, this conversation going kind of like this. Judas is the instigator. He speaks up first and says, what are you doing, Mary? You fool. That's worth like, I don't know, like a whole year's wages. And then the other disciples chime in. I'm guessing Matthew was chiming in at this point. Remember, he's the tax collector. He was a retired tax collector. And so he had spent years crunching numbers. He was the expert number cruncher in the group of disciples. He had crunched numbers, and as a tax collector, he was an expert in assessing the value of anyone's property, right? That's how he was able to determine how much to tax them. And so he was an expert at determining the value of assets. He's kind of like the ultimate guy on the antique roadshow, you know. He's there assessing the value. And so I imagine it going like this. Judas says, that was worth like a year's wages. And Matthew chimes, actually, Judas, it's not worth $30,000, on the open market, that particular jar of perfume is worth $37,500. 
And so they're chiming in. They're calculating the value of this. And meanwhile, Mary couldn't care less. She wasn't crunching numbers. She hadn't done the math. She wasn't interested in the numbers. All she knew was that she loved Jesus and wanted to worship Jesus. Amen? She wanted to worship him by giving him the most precious thing she had to give, her treasured alabaster jar of imported perfume. Was it extravagant? Absolutely. Some people in that room probably thought that she was flushing down the toilet her best chance of landing a decent husband. Many people in that room thought that she was throwing away her chance of a happy marriage because now she has no dowry, but she didn't care. She was giving her very best to the pearl of great price. To her, it was much more important to give that to her Lord than to give it to her future husband. Like King David in 2 Samuel 24, she refused to bring an offering to the Lord that didn't cost her something. She was extravagant in her worship. And we should be extravagant in our worship. We should give God our very best. If you give Christ your leftovers, that's not worship. Give Him your first and and give Him your best. When you worship Him through singing, sing your very best. Who cares if you like your own voice? Give Him your very best when you sing to Him. When you worship Him through giving, give Him your very best. Don't give Him your leftovers when it's time to give a tithe or an offering. Give Him your first. Give Him your best. When you worship Him through giving, give Him your best. When you worship through serving, serve Him your very best. He gave you extravagant love and grace, so we've got to give Him extravagant worship just like Mary. Well, lesson number three, read this with me. True worship is humble. A true worshiper isn't... I'm reading by myself here. Read this with me. True worship is humble. A true worshiper isn't worried about looking undignified in front of others. Isn't that true? You realize that Mary was breaking all sorts of social norms when she did what she did for Jesus here in John 12? For starters, no self-respecting woman would ever deal with a man's feet. You see, the servants in Jesus' day wouldn't even deal with someone's stinky feet. And believe me, sandals on the open road, the animals were walking down those same roads, all sorts of bad stuff was being dropped on those roads that those open-toed sandals were walking on, so those feet were nasty. No self-respecting servant would even do that. The only exception was... The guy at the bottom of the pecking order is a servant. The very lowest servant in the house would be given the, excuse the French, peon job of dealing with someone's dirty, stinky feet. No self-respecting woman would ever do that, but Mary did it. Not only that, she lets down her hair in public. This is something a Jewish woman would never do. There was only one exception. What kind of woman would let down her hair in public? prostitute so that very well by itself could have completely ruined her reputation she lets down her hair she gets down and she wipes the feet of jesus her reputation may have been ruined but she didn't seem to care all she knew is she wanted to worship jesus in the very best way that she could the apostle paul points out in first corinthians eleven fifteen. this is so good in 1 Corinthians 11:15 Paul reminds us that a woman's hair, particularly a woman's long hair, is her glory. 
Now, we won't get into the details of what that means for a woman's hair to be her glory, but suffice it to say this. When Mary wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, let's put up that slide. When when Mary wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, she laid her glory at the feet of Jesus. Isn't that good? She laid her glory at the feet of Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves, do we say the same thing? I lay my glory at the feet of Jesus. Now, what's my glory? Those are all the things that I value in my life. The things that I say, I I did a pretty good job on that. I'm pretty talented at doing this. Uh, I've had this accomplishment. I've had this accolade. All of those things that I might have accomplished, the very best things about me, I lay them at the feet of Jesus. I lay my glory at his feet. Mary gave him her very best. She surrendered it all in worship, laying her glory at the feet of Jesus. That really touched me when I came across that insight this last week. And finally, lesson number four. And some may think I saved the best for last. Read this with me. True worship changes the atmosphere in a place. A true worshiper spreads the aroma of Christ. This insight blew me away this last week. After Mary's spontaneous act of worship, she got down on her hands and knees, didn't she? After her spontaneous act of worship, she got down on the floor and, and, and she did an amazing thing. What did she do? She worshipped him. She anointed him with oil. And after her spontaneous act of worship, she got up from the floor and she smelled like Jesus. And that struck me this last week. After her act of worship, Mary smelled like Jesus, and Jesus smelled like Mary. Wow. Isn't that awesome? So imagine what must have happened in the days following this anointing. Maybe Simon the leper had some visitors in his house, and uh, they're coming to visit. Hey, Simon, how you doing? They walk through the door. Whoa, someone spilled something in here. Who spilled something in here? And Simon would have had to tell them the story. Well, actually, no one spilled anything. But a couple days ago, Mary lives across town there. She opened up and broke a flask an alabaster jar of perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet. He would have told them the story of Mary. That's pretty cool that the house had the residual smell of worship. But even more amazing in my mind is the thought that when someone came across Mary a day or two later, they would walk past her and they would smell her hair and they would say something, "I, I recognize that smell. I recognize that smell. Christmas morning two weeks ago, I walk into the family room, and there was that wonderful, glorious smell. Christine was making homemade cinnamon rolls. Oh, those cinnamon rolls were so good. They tasted good. They filled us up, and they smelled so good. Have you ever noticed those times when you smell something and it takes you back? You smell something, and it takes you back, for some of you, maybe 50 years to a memory in the past of your mom making fresh chocolate chip cookies or popcorn or whatever it might be, sometimes a smell will take us back like that to a better time and a better place. Two days after the anointing, maybe someone walked by the hair, smelled Mary's hair. I've, I've smelled that smell before. And after a few seconds, they make that connection. She smells like Jesus. 
And someone a day or two later, I think this is so cool, I never really thought of this, the next day he's having his triumphal entry, and so he's on that little donkey going down the hill into Jerusalem through the Mount of Olives, and what does Jesus smell like? He probably still smells like that alabaster jar of perfume. She smelled like Jesus, and Jesus smelled like her. You go over to the glorious passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and Paul writes, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. There are certain smells that change the atmosphere. There are these certain smells that take us back. And when it comes down to it in a very real sense, the more time you spend worshiping Jesus the more you will smell like Jesus. The more time you spend in worship, the more time you spend in His Word, the more time you spend in prayer, the more you will smell like Jesus and the more people around you will be touched and transformed by Jesus. I I recognize that attitude. I, I recognize those words you're speaking. I recognize that compassion and that love. It reminds me of someone and then it clicks. It reminds me of Jesus. The more we spend in worship with Jesus, the more we will resonate with the aroma of Jesus. And isn't that what life is all about for us who follow Christ? Spreading the message of Jesus. Being Christ with skin on in the real world to people who desperately need the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So he gives us this wonderful challenge. Keep prioritizing worship with your fellow Christians here at Impact. Come every week. Be in the presence of Christ. And when we leave this place, wherever we go, whether it's to Tom's Burgers or In-N-Out or Walmart, uh, wherever we go, people should take note, we have been with Jesus. You kind of smell like Christ. And on your own, make sure you spend time with Jesus. More and more this world needs the sweet aroma of Jesus Christ. And that sweet aroma was designed to stick to you and me. We want them to see that we have been in worship. We want them to see that Jesus Christ is exactly what they need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for this sweet and powerful word. Thank you for the example of Mary of Bethany, who worshipped you humbly who worshipped you extravagantly, who worshipped you in spirit and in truth and spread wherever she went the aroma of Christ. Lord, I pray that even in this building, Lord, there's different tenants in this building that come in Monday through Friday. I pray that there would be weeks when they come in on a Monday morning and, and they can't put their finger on it, but something's different about this building. Something's different about this place, and we pray that in your grace you would help them to make that connection. It's because worship of Jesus Christ took place in this room the day before. I pray, O God, that as we go into our workplaces, as we go into our homes, as we go into stores in town, into restaurants, as we go into schools or wherever we go during the week, that we would change the environment because the aroma of Christ is going in with us. Help us, O God, to be change agents wherever we go, spreading everywhere the fragrance, the sweet, sweet fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
And I pray if there's anyone here who has never made a decision to accept you as as Savior and Lord today, that right now that they would pray with me, Heavenly Father, please forgive me. I realize that I am a sinner. I have broken your commands. And I have not followed your word. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. Please come into my life. Wash my sins away. And I want you to be from this point forward my Savior, but also my Lord. I want you to call the shots. I want you to be my spiritual leader. And I will follow you for the rest of my life and obey your commands. In Jesus' name.